uh, Ryan, have you gotten any any text messages yet of saying like, oh, have you guys heard about this new thing on Netflix called Heist? Maybe about 30. Uh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, everyone. It's episode 315 of Bourbon Pursuit, the podcast featuring news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman, and before we start today's episode with another great bourbon community roundtable, here's your weekly bourbon news update. This week, we start off the episode with some unfortunate news. Maddie Sims, otherwise known as The Bourbon Bard on Instagram and his website, thebourbonbard.com, passed away this past week. He was a longtime supporter of the podcast from the very early days and was always one of our biggest cheerleaders. Our thoughts and prayers got to his family and our deepest condolences. And here's another reminder to go and get signed up for the world's top whiskey taster competition from Bardstown Bourbon Company. You are going to compete for a chance to win a scholarship to Moonshine University, the opportunity to create your own blend that will go out to market with master distiller Steve Nally, get a sponsored block party in your hometown, and a massive $20,000 cash prize. Sign up now for the casting call at worldstopwhiskeytaster.com to showcase your knowledge and that enthusiastic personality of yours. There's another big news for us on the Pursuit Spirit side, and that is Pursuit United is now in route. Last week, we finished up bottling, and it came out to a total of 9,342 bottles of Pursuit United. Distributors were picking up last week and this week, and it will slowly be making its way out to retail shelves in Colorado, Georgia, Illinois, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Texas, and online at, of course, sealbox.com. We're beyond excited for this release because we put years of work into it, and I hope you're able to get your hands on it. We couldn't really be happy with the finished product. I mean, we love it, and I know you're going to love it too. At 108 proof and $65, non-chill filtered, it's going to really speak to those bourbon nerds out there. So go get one and maybe go get another as a backup because this is going to be the final release of 2021, and the 2022 release is still to be determined. A bottle of bourbon from Old Ingle Dew that was bottled in the 1860s by Evans and Raglan in LaGrange, Georgia, is to be known as the oldest bourbon in existence and was the subject of intense bidding at Skinner's auction that ended back on June 30th. The liquid inside is believed to be a century older than its bottling date, and appraisers utilized carbon-14 testing that was conducted by extracting some of the precious liquid with a hypodermic syringe to reveal an origination date of approximately 1763, with a high probability that the whiskey was distilled in the late 18th century. The Morgan Library, a museum and independent research institution that was originally the private library of financer J.P. Morgan, paid $110,000 at the auction. Angel's Envy has unveiled the details of an $8.2 million expansion to its downtown Louisville distillery. The expansion will add more than 13,000 square feet, including a new event space and bar, a larger retail space, and several new tasting rooms. It will increase the annual guest capacity by 64,000 and create approximately 20 new jobs in Louisville. Construction began in late 2020 and is expected to be completed in the spring of 2022. Now moving on to bourbon release news. After more than four decades of making bourbon at Seagram's and Four Roses, legendary master distiller Jim Rutledge and his company, the J.W. Rutledge Distillery, is launching High Plains Rye Straight Rye Whiskey. 
This multi-state blend includes five straight rye whiskeys from four states, Indiana, Kentucky, Ohio, and New York. It's bottled at 97 proof, and High Plains Rye will release in 24 states across the U.S. with a retail price of $55. Limestone Branch Distillery has announced the release of their annual Yellowstone Limited Edition Bourbon for 2021. This year's blend by master distiller Stephen Beam features both 7- and 15-year Kentucky Straight Bourbons, with select barrels of the 7-year that were finished in Amarone casks. Amarone is a rich kind of red wine. The final blend is bottled at the standard 101 proof and has a retail price of $100. And in collaboration with Jordan Winery and Firestone Walker Brewery, Whistlepig Whiskey has launched Roadstock Rye Whiskey. The journey for this expression began earlier this year at Whistlepig's 500-acre farm in Shoreham, Vermont, where Whistlepig commissioned an 18-wheeler of its rolling rickhouse. The truck then made its way on a 6,000-mile barrel finishing trip. Half of the Roadstock Whiskey blend was actually transferred into Bordeaux casks from the Jordan Winery in Sonoma's Alexander Valley. The whiskey in those Bordeaux casks were 78% Cabernet, 12% Merlot, 8% Petit Verdot, and 2% Malbec. At Firestone Walker, the balance of the whiskey was then transferred into Firestone's Imperial Stout, which is an Imperial Blonde Ale and Experimental Ale barrels, to finish on the long ride back to Vermont. It was then driven back to Vermont where the distillery team married the whiskey finishes into the Roadstock bottles, and each of them is adorned with a custom rubber tires top. It's bottled at 86 proof and has a retail price of $73. Now for this episode, the Bourbon Community Roundtable we take an in-depth analysis of The Bourbon King. It took place on two episodes from a new Netflix series called Heist. Now, I have to warn you, if you have not seen this yet, this episode is going to be full of spoilers. So if you plan on watching it, pause this now, go watch it, and then come back. On the second half of the episode, we also talk about the new executive order coming straight from the White House that is going to put a microscope on the alcohol industry. It's going to be looking at unfair trade practices when it comes to distribution and competition. With that, enjoy today's episode. And now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from My Bourbon Journal on Twitter, who wrote me on June 24th. Uh, there's maybe more people now than ever before actually tasting whiskey and making their own tasting notes or analyzing others' notes. Any prediction on where this leads us in five years? 20 years? Great question, my bourbon journal. Uh, I do think that we are in the beginning of the period of, of tasting and analyzing whiskey. Uh, way back, Way back in the 1990s are really when tasting notes began. Before that, you would see note you would see like very bland uh, notes and advertisements sent from retailers. Smooth, really smooth finish. Um, if you were lucky, you saw like maybe a caramel call out, uh, but it was everything was always you know predicated on smooth being the operative word and uh, always being you know focused there with price or quality. And, you know, there would be some master distiller backing it up with a claim. But that's how, how whiskey was typically marketing. And, and really, tasting notes were uh, the beginning of them really kind of coming to what they are today. It goes back to the 90s with, uh, with brands uh, marketing their, their products 
And the most important one was probably Woodford Reserve. Brown Foreman put a lot of effort to make that product stand out differently. And they did a lot of tasting notes uh, on Woodford Reserve, and they've done a really good job of tracking that product's uh, history of like how it's, you know, how it tastes over time. And then at the same time, you had Whiskey Magazine and you had Whiskey Advocate uh, coming out with tasting notes and the the kind of general philosophy of the modern tasting notes are basically created by Paul Packolt, who's a you know brilliant spirits writer and critic. And today, you know, we see a lot of consumers doing it. And and I read the consumer reviews, and I think everyone has their own tasting methods and profiles, and and has their own techniques. And I think that's great. And I do think we are building a database of flavor points. And I think what you will see in the coming years is you will see all of those like flavors, all those tasting notes kind of come together and probably like a chart. And, you know, people will start charting them out and we will be mapped uh, based on what our preferences are and what we like. But I think what it is, tasting notes, uh, they're data. And so basically you are looking at data um, and who knows where it will go. I do think we're probably time and maybe I have a few things up my sleeve that you'll learn about later but I think it's probably time that you know the tasting note game will change uh in the next few years what that's going to be well stick around and find out but that's going to do it for this week's episode I thought that was a really really great question coming from my bourbon journal um and where when we look into the future you always have to look into the past And the 90s were quite the time for tasting notes and whiskey. But that's going to do it for this week. Be safe out there, folks. And remember, tip your bartender. Cheers, everybody. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. And they're off for another Get 270-2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at give270.org. Charitable gaming license ORG 000 Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or thebourbonconcierge.com and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long.
Welcome, everybody, to Bourbon Community Roundtable number 59 as part of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. Kenny and Ryan as part of the, the three people from the team here tonight. And we've got two really great topics. And maybe one we'll get to, but I know one is the first one we're going to talk about is really kind of top of mind because it's kind of hitting all the pop culture and it's starting to. I, I Ryan, have you gotten any? Any text messages yet of saying like, oh, have you guys heard about this new thing on Netflix called Heist? Maybe about 30. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) They're like, hey, have you heard about this show about Happy Gate? And I'm like, yes, I have. Thank you. I will watch it as soon as I can. Uh, But no, I got a chance to watch it today. Well, I watched some last night and then fell asleep. And then I finished the rest of the day. It's a yeah, we'll dive into it, I'm sure. But yeah, it's a interesting show for sure. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting show, and I think it it definitely romanticized uh, the whole oh, thing yeah. a little bit. It was definitely uh, like a Days of Our Lives episode version of the Pappy Gate, but um, yeah, it was like uh, definitely dramatized a little bit. But we'll well, you got to make it sound more interesting than probably the actual outcome of it. But we'll get to that here in a minute. Let's go ahead and introduce everybody that's a part of the roundtable here, real quick. So starting off with Brian from Sipping Corn. How are hey, you? Brian? Yeah, appreciate it, guys. Hope everyone's doing all right. Um, Brian with Sipping Corn and uh, the the Pappy Gate thing. I'm I'm really interested in talking about because I wasn't planning on watching it at all. I was going to try to stay away from it, but uh, it's on the topic, so I I dove in and ready to roll with it and uh, love the topics. And we also learned something new about Brian this week: uh, is that Brian doesn't actually have Netflix. He might be like one of ten people left in the world. <laughs> True fact. Who's login, who's login did you borrow? <laughs> Can't tell. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. All right, Nick, what's happening, man? Hey, everybody. Nick with uh, Breaking Bourbon here. Uh, glad to be here. BCR 59. Um, I will say, like, I can't remember the last one I was on here, but that's been probably a couple uh, since I've joined. But I would say, like, Papigate. The thing that surprised me the most was that this happened in 2013. I was just thinking about like how quickly time has passed since then. I mean, that's quite a ways away, but it really doesn't feel that long ago. So then, then as we're seeing this preparing for BCR 59, again, I know it's like we just had 50 and celebrated that, but man, time is flying. So glad to be here. Excited for uh, these topics. Second topic too, actually, hopefully we have time for it because that's uh, some interesting stuff going on there as well. Yeah, we'll we'll make some time for it. I think it's it's worth calling out because I don't want to wait for another month to talk about it with you guys. So we'll we'll definitely make sure we do that. And uh Blake, how you doing, buddy? Doing well, doing well. Yeah. So I'm Blake from uh Bourboner and Sealbox and always good to be here. You know, the the streak continues. This this Sunday night uh has thrown me off <laughs> two two times in a row, but you know, number fifty nine. I'm glad we got it going. So yeah, I'll make sure to try to get us back on schedule to a Mondays. We got we got a big recording week going on this week, so yeah, it just happened to be that I kind of screwed up. Got to slip it in. I don't know. We're <laughs> recording with somebody else tomorrow night, and I just completely screwed up the calendar, and and it was like either this or a bunch of I boring like that shit. You know, about. you know, we're the ones that just get bumped. Like, hey, uh, y'all have to. <laughs> had that at a barrel pick they're like hey we got an out-of-town guest coming in to do the barrel pick can you move days i'm like well i'm also from out of town what does that say <laughs> yeah no problem we'll move <laughs> here last week like yeah i was i just got back on uh I get back friday yeah 
Yeah. And I mean, got, I thought I know. I'd see you in the, uh, you know, Louisville airport crossing paths. So, yeah. And, yeah, but we did, we had a, we had a, you know, for anybody that doesn't know, Ryan and I last week, we were out, uh, doing some, some actual bourbon work, traveling for bourbon work nowadays. We headed up to Baltimore with the Sagamore distillery or Sagamore spirit distillery. Checked it out. If you haven't, if you live in the Baltimore area, definitely go take a look at it. Um, you know, they're one of our partners that we're working with for the Pursuit United Rye Project. Yeah, it's uh, really good stuff in the distilleries, just as good as the whiskey. It's a beautiful project. They've done great hospitality. It reminds me of the feel of like Barstown Bourbon Company, you know, same kind of vibe, same kind of hospitality. Um, was really impressed with it and had a successful trip there. I'm really excited to partner with those guys. They're great. Yeah, they sure were. And then after that, we headed up to Finger Lakes Distilling, which was, uh, gosh, pretty picturesque. So if you happen to be in the northern New York area, it's definitely one to go and just check out, too. Smaller operation, but great whiskey all around. So. And a lot of waterfalls and wineries around there. Definitely. Go go for the wineries and then have a glass of bourbon on the way, because that's that's the way it, it kind of seems around there. I think, I think there were probably it passed at least 50 of them while we were oh, driving through there. At least. Yeah. All right, so let's go ahead and we'll dive into our topics for tonight. So the first one is, as as I mentioned earlier, it's like the, the epitome of pop culture and everything that's happening right now. And then we're going to start breaking down and kind of analyzing the last two episodes of Netflix's new series called Heist. And the episodes five and six were called The Bourbon King. And it's the story of Gilbert Toby Kurtzinger, who is an employee at Buffalo Trace that stole hundreds of thousands of dollars of Pappy Van Winkle. And then ended up actually moving from bottles to selling entire barrels and getting kind of this like stolen barrel ring here. So kind of uh, we're going to take it from the very beginning and kind of start breaking this down a little bit. So the one thing I found pretty interesting with this is that there were lots of pano shots, just panoramic shots of actually Buffalo Trace Distillery. Now, that's one of the things that I'm kind of curious about because there were other shots were definitely not at Buffalo Trace of them like taking Pappy Van Winkle bottles and putting in jackets. But do you all think they they got permission to film something like this to do those overhead panoramic shots? Do they have to get? I mean, it's it's like a historical landmark. Um, or it's airspace. I, I don't know. The The thing that in this kind of ties in but the thing i noticed was they didn't use actual pappy van winkle bottles it was a label but the bottle shape was off so i it that's the first thing that made me think hey is buffalo trace a part of this and is providing information or is buffalo trace like no we don't want any um any part of this like don't mention us <laughs> okay well it's kind of hard to do but you might have just mentioned something that i didn't even realize did anybody else realize that they're not Pappy, I thought they were. I thought they were just like somebody's no, stock the, that they the were shoulder, using. The shoulder was different. If if you go back and look, um, it was more, it, it wasn't the cognac style. It was more like the, and, and maybe I'm crazy. I did watch this on a plane, but I'm 99% positive that um, the shoulder of the bottles was slightly different. It wasn't a, you know, a smooth transition. It was more of that kind of uh, like L-shaped rather than the, the curve that you have with Pappy. Interesting. I don't think I noticed that. Yeah. I thought it interesting too. Like, you know how they would faux interview the employees or whatever. And they had the, the polos with the Buffalo trace, you know, kind of logo. I don't know if it was exact. I didn't study it enough, but I was like, 
It's like, man, this whole documentary feels like a Buffalo Trace like commercial and Pappy commercial. Like, uh, absolutely, it did. Yeah, so that's what I found fascinating about all. Not to interrupt from your commentary, but uh, yeah, I guess kind of two comments on that one. I didn't notice that Blake, but as soon as you said it, I said, well, maybe the, their budget didn't allow for them to actually get real bottles of Pappy. They couldn't find any, but um, yeah, I kind of felt that way too, Ryan. Uh, you know, I kept thinking, you know, this whole thing. I mean, Buffalo Trace seems to have lost track of some amount of bourbon that they apparently didn't really miss that much um, until they just finally happened to notice it. But the PR and the press now, especially from something like this, I mean, you got to, I guess, put a number on there and you got to ask yourself, is Buffalo Trace looking at this whole incident at this point now with this coming out on Netflix and saying, this is fantastic PR. This is well worth, you know, the, I guess, the embarrassment of basically not being able to keep track of this stuff for the PR that we're getting now and how much it's strengthened the brands and the distillery. And now the people are going to be lining up to go visit that distillery when they go to Kentucky, of course. Oh yeah. I think, I, I think it definitely did, you know, did right by Buffalo trace on it by, by all means. Um, I, you know, I guess, I guess going back to the original question was, I mean, do you all think they did some filming on scene or, or like actually there at Buffalo trace? Because I think that it would be, or should I say, I feel it would be a little weird that you wouldn't get like Buffalo's trace side of the story into this, or they wouldn't have some sort of input on how this story was told unless they let them film on set or like they're at the distillery. So kind of curious about your thoughts too. They might not have wanted to have any say in it. I mean, this plays like just what Nick described. This plays out perfectly for them without them commenting at all, without them owning their own incompetence for inventory management. And you've got people talking about that. This is the bourbon you want to steal. And, you know, sure, there's barrels of wild turkey that they barely mentioned, but it's it's focused on Buffalo Trace. And then they've got even had Buffalo regular Buffalo Trace bottles in several of the background shots, which don't have anything to do with with any part of the allegations. I mean, it was just yeah. product placement all over the place is what it looked like. Cases of Eagle Rare, too. You know, yeah, which, cases of Eagle. Yeah. And I think there were some missing totes or something of Eagle yeah. Rare. I remember early on. But yeah, not not bottles and cases of that, and definitely not bottles of just regular old Buffalo Trace. I'm fairly sure they said at the end too that Buffalo Trace declined to comment on this. Um, you know, mm-hmm. so thinking of it from their perspective, I think they made some commentary about that they thought it was just, I guess it was kind of an embarrassing thing that I mean bottles were being stolen from the gift shop and no one noticed it. You know, it's not like it's like where were the cameras? You know, how could this have possibly happened? And as the story goes, this supposed idea that all the employees were participating and there was such large volumes, you know, it's fairly embarrassing. So how do you as Buffalo Trace, you know, maybe the best thing is just don't say anything, you know, fix it from the inside and and run with the PR that you get from it, you know, and salvage what you salvage what you can by really just not participating in it at this point. That's right. It seemed like the the only person that cared was the sheriff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which and think about it from Buffalo Trace's perspective. What did they actually lose? You know, we, we say hundreds of thousands of dollars in bourbon, so they lost, you know, call it two hundred bottles of Pappy Twenty. Um, that they're probably selling that to a wholesaler at ninety bucks a bottle. So you know, we're not talking about a huge loss to them from a company perspective. They've gained 
millions of dollars in PR from this whole Pappy Heist thing and everybody just blowing it way out of proportion. Um, so I think it's a big win for them. I mean, if we're being realistic, I'm sure they've amped up their security because they don't want employees walking off. But it just seemed like from watching the documentary, that's what happened. Like everybody did that. You just walked away with bourbon. And, you know, when you're taking a few cases here and there at a most likely billion dollar company um, across the board, maybe not that high, but, you know, in the hundreds of millions of dollar company, um, it, it just doesn't go notice. So it's just the prestige of Pappy and the allure and the secondary market that creates the value and makes this a hundred thousand dollar heist. Um, but to them, you know, they missed out on, you know, $18,000 in sales. So not a big number by any means. Right. And I think, uh, when we were talking about Eagle rare there a second ago, because they had mentioned that this was all happening really starting in like 2008. I mean, think about it. Like who needed that much Eagle rare back in 2008? That shit was just lined on the shelves. You didn't, you didn't need to wait for anywhere. I, I, that yeah. was, that was kind of surprising or just kind of played into the narrative they wanted to tell. Well, even 2012, 2013, I mean, Pappy, I, you could find it pretty easily on the shelves here. Mm -hmm. Like I, I got married in 2012 and I, I went to the liquor store and they were all there and I was torn to get my best man. You know, I was like, do I get him the 23 or do I get the, and I settled on the 20, I think. And you know, they're, they were all there, but uh, yeah, it's like, you know, people are like, well, how can this happen? You know, this is just absurd. You know, they need, and it's like back then still people just weren't obsessed about bourbon then. And it was just, most employees had like an unlimited liquor allowance, you know, and it was just like, you know, take whatever. It wasn't, you know, stealing. And then, you know, of course, he had to ruin it for everybody. And, you know, just like <laughs> and got greedy. And then packed in some steroids with it and guns, too, you know, to make it. <laughs> yeah. Guns and steroids was a nice touch. But yeah, was yeah. he ever stealing guns? I mean, it, it like showed him buying guns or like eBay. Yeah, so right. he just had guns, right? He just like, had guns. Yeah. Now the steroids thing, okay, I get like, Everybody was doing that, though, right? It's right. Steroids or guns? Yeah. <laughs> softball team. The steroids. Well, it depends what softball team you're on or what league you're in. I mean, that's. Yeah, I mean, that's that's golly. I mean, talk about a far fetched reality of like making excuse for something to say that, oh, yeah, I need to buy a bunch of steroids for my, you know, middle aged men's softball league. Like, come on, give me a break. Yeah, well, I think what I think what is interesting is, is, you know, kind of that transition too. if you think about, you know, the whiskey making and, you know, just thinking back even even farther, you know, whiskey from, you know, bootlegging and everything that's happened in whiskey's history you know this idea that yeah you worked at this distillery and again we're talking about fucking whiskey here i mean like at the end of the day that somebody spent years investigating it to some extent it's kind of like wouldn't there be a better use of resources to find maybe somebody that was actually hurting somebody or doing something bad but you think maybe there was this transition over time where, where yes people did you know, fill up, you know, fill up something with whiskey and walk out with it. Well, eventually that turned into, ah, let's take a bottle. Let's take two bottles. Oh, we're drinking at the end of the day, whatever the case might be, you know, where it's, it's like putting the the frog in, in cold water and then boiling it. You know, you don't really notice it till suddenly something like this happens. And maybe you realize, oh, wait, this is the culture. Everybody just takes things and we're an actual business and actual operation. That's not okay. Maybe it was just the people surrounding 
you know, uh, Toby there, obviously he was under the impression that that's what was going on with everybody. Maybe it was just the people he knew, you know, but it's interesting that that was the perspective that over the past 20 years, 30 years, that was the culture. And it transitioned to this idea that, and if you watch his demeanor through this, he kind of acts like, shit, I was entitled to this. Why couldn't I? I wasn't really doing anything wrong. Everybody was doing it. Why can't I just help some people out? You know, I'm just helping out friends. Why is that not okay? So what do you guys think about that kind of like transition yeah. over time? Did that surprise you? I mean, I think it probably shows what the culture was against most employees. And I don't think everybody's finished it. So I, maybe I should say spoiler alert at this point. But um, I mean, has everybody got to the part where essentially he wasn't the guy who stole all the bottles of Pappy, like, yeah, we'll get some, to that. Come on, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a twist at the end. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but hey, we're talking about it. If you're, ta we're talking about it. You didn't listen. Um, it's on like, you. Yeah, yeah, you know. But like, there were so many people who they give these, and I'm sure Brian can give us the actual description. But it's like immunity of all right. If you talk to us, we give you immunity, and everyone was like, oh yeah, I stole. Yeah, I stole these bottles over here. Yeah. So like that was just kind of the culture. So I'm not saying he's right and to say like um he's entitled to them by any means, but it seems like, you know, it was a good old boys club. Like you took it, nobody said anything, and everybody kept their mouth shut. It was fine. Um until it got international attention and you know, a sheriff made it his mainstay to find the culprit. So Yeah. I want to know what the Frankfurt uh, Police Department spent on how much resources they did to spent on, you know, f finding who this two hundred two hundred thousand dollars worth of bourbon or whatever. It's like, I mean, they probably spent a half million dollars, you know, and like nobody gave a shit except for Frankfurt Police Department. It seemed like, or at least, and, and I found it fascinating too. They did kind of. My wife was like, "Man, they're like really portraying this guy as like the victim," <laughs> you know. Uh, you know, he it, they got his really kids did. crying on there and like saying, you know, I mean, he he was at fault and he knew what he was doing wrong. But uh, I mean, I know, you know, like we just talked about earlier, that I, I know a lot of people that work at distilleries, and back then it just was what you did. You know, you got to take a few bottles with you, um, and that was that was just part of it. So that's they probably just thought it was part of the culture and just just didn't well, think it was ever going to be a thing. Well, let's clarify also take a few bottles. I mean, because it's not just like you're in the you know, in the packing line where you're just like, oh, okay, I'll just put a few bottles in the bag. I mean, oh, sure. typically there's for a germ and check it out, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, you have a thing you sign and you say what you took or anything like that. I mean, we've gosh, remember that podcast recorded with, uh, Perry from Stitzel Weller. And he's like, yeah, I used to have this, uh, this rubber hose that we'd go and siphon bourbon out. And that's what we just, you know, just pop open a bung, take a, take a sip. And then we move to the next one. I mean, that's, that kind of was the culture, um, to be able to take sips and whatnot. And, and yes, you had an allocation of bottles you could take, but this definitely got to the point where it was just excessive and greedy. And, and because he knew what he was doing, uh, he knew that he was getting money for these and wasn't drinking them. It was just purely selling and for profit. Yeah. And, and the point, Ryan's point about having his kids on there, that just absolutely floored me. I mean, who, who does this, who puts their kids on a documentary to cry. And so that, that tells me that he's got a pretty good payday out of this deal. If, you know, cause they probably wanted for the dramatic nature of it, they probably wanted his kids. And, and so he does it and man, how much do you think he's getting paid? Yeah, he, well, got, he, he got he got some money paid? from it. You oh think he God, did? yeah, absolutely. He got paid for this. I mean, 
that's that's like a, journalistic integrity. You don't pay the source, but I guess it's a Netflix documentary. So uh, <laughs> I mean, it's it's it's, it's, it's like pop. any 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 pop any pop star that goes on and does like a you know a something with sixty minutes or anything like that. I mean, they're getting paid. Like somebody's getting paid from somewhere. Like it's like nope. Jose Canseco with steroids. You know, <laughs> going out and getting paid to do you know books or whatever just to try to capitalize something off of it. Right. Uh, another question here is, who the hell is Moonshine Mike? They brought him in with like no introduction, and I'm like, am I supposed to know Moonshine Mike? Like, <laughs> I had no I, idea. I, I don't know if that was supposed to like give the background of like lawlessness of people running moonshine in Kentucky or what. But I was kind of thrown off by that. I thought we we're going to get a little backstory at some point, but seemed like a good guy. But uh, I have no idea yeah. how he related to the story. And I was kind of frustrated by all that because they always try to make mm-hmm. Kentucky just look like idiots, you know, just doing stupid things and stealing whiskey, put covering barrels with tarps, blacking them out, you know, just, you know, it's just like, come on, let's, I don't know. It just kind of frustrates me because that's what every, people think, you know, it's like, oh, there's Kentucky people, you know, and it's not like that really. Try I mean, being from Florida. Actually, a lot of places. <laughs> Florida man, Florida man. Yeah, I don't know if you know if if the point of that was to kind of tie in the idea of moonshining and you know this kind of lawlessness is in whiskey's past and everybody was doing it, but it, you know that made me think you know to some extent you know yeah moonshining was basically you're you're making it on your own without paying taxes and you know following the protocol and actually. Based on our second topic, I, I was looking up some of the TTB rules and it actually surprised me how extensive some of the penalties can be for basically not paying taxes if you distill. Um, but that got me thinking, too, with this, you know, in the case of moonshining, yeah, you're breaking the law, but you're doing it on your own. You're really not hurting anybody. Whereas you in this other case, you know, basically Toby's just stealing, you know, doesn't care who he's hurting. You know, they're taking these wild turkey barrels, they're spray painting over them. And he said at one point, uh, no one's going to know they're from wild turkey. So that makes me think, okay, well, they were probably then taking empty bottles of Pappy or maybe fake bottles of Pappy and filling them with bourbon from those wild turkey barrels, because why not do that? No one's going to know anyway. Right. And so, you know, you just think they're totally different things. I mean, you know, completely, you know, hurting people in the sense of, you know, that, that they're stealing and everything they're doing, not moonshining in any, in any sense of the word. So I don't know if they were trying to tie those two together or what the idea there was. And even though, you know, they really can't point to anybody that was specifically hurt by this, you know, it's the idea that I just don't think they're the same. So I don't know where they were going with that. Who is Brad Bowman? I I did not, I've never, do you all, did you know who he was? It was the first time I'd heard of him. So I'd never heard of him either, but you know, from what I caught in the documentary, he was a journalist that was covering political news at the time. So I guess this is just feeding into whatever had to do with elections. And I think we'll talk about that that here in a second too, because I, I want to talk about the the wild turkey barrels. I think this was a very interesting scenario and kind of like and, and Nick, you make a great point. The fact that he was getting this means he probably had access to foils and anything that would be able to be able to make a, a legit fake at that point. The wild turkey barrels is, I think, an interesting term because they started moving from moving bottles to starting moving barrels. And 
At a great deal too. I wish I would have hit him. God, what was it like two thousand or something? It was like three grand. Think three thousand. Yeah, three yeah. thousand a barrel. Like like fifteen hundred. Then they went to three thousand. I was like, still, I'll take those all day, man. <laughs> I know, no shit. Like we'll figure out where to hide one of those. But I mean, that's uh, it's a hell of a deal, especially if it's some you know double digit wild turkey around there. But I think that was that was an interesting turn and in, and being able to start moving barrels and uh, kind of where it went. I guess, uh, you know, part of it is, you know, where, where do you all think, like, if you're, if you're going to get a barrel and how do you, how do you keep that like hidden? Because there's no way to just like own a barrel of whiskey and be able to siphon stuff out of there and keep it hidden forever. I mean, that's, it's a lot of bourbon for people that don't understand. Apparently a tarp. Well, that's, yeah, you know, a blue tarp will do it. <laughs> it was interesting. It was like showing them at the softball game, just breaking into a barrel and, you know, it yeah. flowing free. solo cups. Yeah. yeah but awesome. I mean, it, it's just an interesting point whenever he said, tell me what I stole. None of this has re- been reported stolen. So, you know, it just shows you how big the inventories are at these warehouses. You pull one barrel out of a 40, 50,000 barrel warehouse, they're not going to notice. Um, and so that, you know, kind of puts all this like bourbon shortages into perspective a little bit. Yeah. And I think that also feeds back into what Ryan said about who is Brad Bowman. I think he lost a little bit of credibility when he says, how do you, how do you not realize five barrels are missing? It's like, have you ever seen the the inventory is one plus million at these places? Like missing five barrels is just a rounding error. Well, I mean, it's always back to the old, you know, there's more barrels aging in Kentucky than there are people. And it's like, well, when you think about that, like a person could go missing, no problem. But yet we think five barrels should be like all hell breaks loose if that happens. We're going to have to have a talk with these uh, distilleries accounting departments. I think that's the moral of the story. (laughs) (laughs) I think you could make some business development trips here now. Yeah, I mean, which you know that you wouldn't have the orphan barrels without lost barrels, you know. So. The unsung hero was the auditor who came in and noticed that some were missing from the pappy cases. So, shout out to the accountants. <laughs> I, I looked how it just like some lady that just like looked at it and had this like really weird, perplexed face on her. You know, it's just like, <laughs> wow, all right. And then he's right behind her. He's got. He's like, oh shit, time to go. <laughs> <laughs> he's it's like, like I almost my, got away with it. It wasn't really pesky auditors. Up. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was kind of funny too. Uh, so, you know, part of this, you know, I kind of want to talk about Sheriff Pat Melton as well, because, you know, he had sensed it was an inside job from the very beginning. And I thought that was also an interesting take that it went to legal recourse right away. Do you all think that Buffalo Trace did any type of internal investigation or they just said, you know what, we're just going to hand this over to the police and we're going to let the police go figure this thing out. I, I don't know, but they had to have. I mean, I can, I can, I don't know, but I can guarantee it. I mean, they did their own internal investigation. They've got their own internal report on this. They have to. Something like this happens. They're going to have to be. They're they're going to have to be reporting to the federal government uh, on what they found it, when you have that much bourbon leaving your bottling room and your gift shop and your you know wherever else they had it. They've got reports to to make. There's th- those that stuff's floating around. And you know, I think uh, I, this kind of goes back to what Ryan had said earlier: is that this seemed like a very big thing for the sheriff's department to really take on. And I thought it was interesting how they took an angle that said, "Oh, this is just about him making re-election." 
does that seem a little far-fetched to say that he was just some media hungry sheriff that was only worried about media like re-election i i feel like that was a little disingenuous of you know either the work that they put in or anything like that yeah that didn't ring true to me either i mean when i just following it as as to the small degree that i did he never struck me as some sort of media hound like they were portraying him to be they kind of alluded to it and i wanted to look it up but didn't but you know it seemed like he was going after a lot of these small time things you know it had him making other busts of drugs and all other illegal activities. So is it kind of smart for a sheriff to go through re-election to, you know, get a nationally and internationally uh, um, thing that is going to bring attention? Yeah, it's probably pretty smart, but it seems like that just was the kind of stuff he was going after. So it just played really well for him. So, you know, it's, it. I think it's kind of disingenuous to say like, oh, he's just doing it for media attention when, um, he was cracking down on criminals at the end of the day. Like if we think these are the criminals he should be going after, that's a different discussion, but he was going after criminals. So it is what it is. Yeah. I found it interesting. It's like, you know, they're like, Oh, he's from Jefferson County coming down here, you know, messing up the good old boy system, you know, and that's, it's just what he's doing his job. You know, that's mm. he, he's there to pursue and, uh, and put away criminals. That's what he's supposed to do. I mean, I mean, it did seem a little excessive, you know, for what, and maybe that's the hard part about documentaries because they can curate and manipulate the the story however they want. And so you don't really see both sides, but you know, all the clips of him just being up there, like we're going to catch these guys, we're going to get it, you know, and you're like, well, just give us an update when you got them. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, who cares? No one cares except for you, you know, but uh, I don't know. I mean, that, that's his job. So, I mean, but clearly he ruffled feathers in the community and they didn't like him. And uh, he lost pretty big substantially. I guess as all those softball teams were like, you know, not a good rallied around together. You, huh? you need those steroids. So the interesting <laughs> part on that is, you know, so we're all pretty deep into the bourbon world. Did any of you realize that he was not the actual guy who stole the pappy until the documentary? Like I yeah. had no, that, that was still a, a twist for me at the end. And I feel like, I read a lot. I had a call with the investigator from Buffalo Trace at one point and was still pretty, you know, deep into all of this and had no clue that was the turn that it was going to take at the end, which then you start to think like, okay, did he try to manipulate the uh, situation a little bit to make it seem like he actually caught the criminal when in reality he knew he had the criminal confess and he gave him immunity, but... um, yeah, yeah, I think that's a that's a great way to put it because there was so anybody that is if you want the if you want the spoiler alert here it is. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon, and that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus Magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point of sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, 
Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone. Transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. If you want the spoiler alert, here it is. So at the twist of the end was Greg Anglin, another employee admitted to stealing a bunch of the cases of Pappy. Now, don't be wrong. Toby was still probably stealing a little bit here and there. Uh, however, the, the majority of it was taken by Greg Anglin. And I also think part of the, the moral of the story is uh, whenever somebody gives you immunity, there's no such thing as immunity. So definitely, you know, take that with a grain of salt when you're, you know, you're talking to the cops and maybe make sure you give uh, bourbon justice a lawyer over here call first before you uh, think yeah, about lawyer up. Yeah, really don't. It, it, that kind of amazed me too. But again, I think that's all part of maybe people just not knowing their rights and they, like, you just need to shut your mouth until you have a lawyer present in front of you. But part of this also goes to the very beginning of, you know, this, or should I say around 2015, maybe even 2016 is when a lot of it was really starting to come to light and they started calling it Pappygate and it was still around, but Toby didn't stop. Like he almost started amplifying his, you know, his greed and started actually trying to get more barrels, more bottles and, and trying to get them out to people. And that's kind of the moral of the story is that you know, hogs get slaughtered kind of thing. And I think that's exactly what happened was he just had a made a lot of poor decisions and, and tried to get bigger and better. Now, part of this is I kind of want to lean on you all here is that his jail sentence was for 15 years. Now, is this not something that might be seen a little excessive for, you know, some some whiskey? 15 being excessive? I mean, yeah. I mean, come on, lawyer. Let's tell me. Say we're just all going to look at Brian for this segment. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, the difference between state courts and federal courts, there's all sorts of guidelines and there's amounts of time that you can get sent away for different levels of offenses. And we're talking felonies here. He, he committed each time he did one of these acts. It's it's a felony. And those things can add up. So there's there's one thing that the judge ruled that they that they had on the on the show. And he said, these are going to run consecutively. So he, he was found guilty for things that could get him five-year sentences. The judge could have said that they could run concurrently. So 15 years all runs at the same time. So you get it done in five, but the judge ordered that it be done consecutively. And then, so it it was just a, a, I remember being surprised when it happened that he got what's called shock probation. So 30 days out, and he's done and he's back home painting somebody's shutters or whatever he's doing now. And it's yeah. that that's shocking to me. Yeah, that's that's definitely um, a big part of the story, too. I, I'll put it off to other folks here. I mean, do you think shock probation was the right thing? 
was 30 days not enough um and should have at least at least been a year or five or something like that well i think i think it is interesting that as he tells the story now afterwards he still seems to have kind of a i was entitled to do this it was okay kind of attitude now that doesn't mean that he's going to do it again per se i mean i guess the whole idea is if having this experience means he's not going to do it again he really didn't hurt anybody nor does it seem like he would you know there's no i guess threat to be had for not having him you know behind bars you know should there be fine should there be some other penalty you know maybe that would make more sense for something like this i guess when you think of somebody behind bars you think of oh we we want to take this person off the street because they're somehow a danger to somebody to me that seems like the most important thing he doesn't seem like a danger to anybody um and even as they dug into the details you know they didn't really prove they stole that much you know uh and in this whole thing you know they hardly prove much of anything which you know the sheriff spent all this time and they don't prove much anything then one guy gets out after 30 days it kind of asks you what was the point of all this shit you know but um certainly seems like there should be more of a penalty than just the 30 days maybe a monetary one and and that's where so and and, you know nick i'm sure you've seen a lot too but it's not like this was a white collar crime essentially but he's stealing from an employer and I mean, Nick, how many times have you seen in the accounting world, somebody, you know, finds out the whoever's stealing money and they just fire them and let them go and keep moving. They never get prosecuted. They go work somewhere else. They do it again. So pay it um, back. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Maybe pay it back. And um, I, I mean, I can't say that I'm like that shocked that that was the outcome because um, you know, at the end of the day, didn't have any other felonies. I would assume that, they lean more on the steroid sales as like an illegal thing than the bourbon. Um, don't get me wrong. I think the bourbon was wrong, but you know, the fact that you're pushing drugs and steroids is, is probably worse in my mind because it's like, well, you know, there weren't many safeguards. You shouldn't have done it, but at the end of the day, it's bourbon. Um, but yeah, so I, I don't know. I'm not that shocked that it was a 30. I think I was more shocked if he would have had to serve 15 years for, stealing bourbon but agree it's probably probably a little far-fetched there ryan i'll I'll ask you kind of one final question for this Uh, the fact that his wife was so seemingly unaware of everything true or false oh definitely false (laughs) i mean they're going to disney and on a and doing like buying looking at lots out in west and all this stuff and on a buffalo trace forklift drivers or whatever processing i don't know i mean i'm sure he does okay but uh, just money showing up out of nowhere. But yeah, that seemed fishy, and um, and then it, it just played into the heartstrings too. Of you know, you wanted to be like Toby. They're going to church, and their pastors talking about redemption, and you know, uh, and they're talking about getting back together. She's not ready, but one day she will be. And uh, she had to know, I think, but maybe not. I don't know. It's it's all a documentary, and it's more of a drama than a documentary. So. I, I think that's what it comes down to. It was all just kind of like a soap opera to me, not a not a real not a real factual story. It was just kind of no. more of a entertaining kind of thing. Let's see how sh- much shock value we can do. Is is it a mockumentary? Does it qualify? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, if it wasn't pappy, it wouldn't be that exciting. And they just, you know, I I really I was with you, Brian. I wasn't going to watch the documentary either. <laughs> like I'm like, who cares? And then. 
Kenny made it a topic, so I had to. And then Thanks, you know, Kenny. I had a bunch of people talk to me or reach out to me about it. So I, I'm glad I watched it. It was interesting, but it, it, I still wasn't like that excited about or interested in the story, really. If it were just the wild turkey barrels, would this have ever been prosecuted? There definitely wouldn't have been a documentary, but would the sheriff have ever cared about it if they were just stealing wild turkey bottles or barrels and selling them for $3,000 a barrel? They're in Lawrenceburg. They couldn't, they couldn't uh, prosecute on that, that line, you know. They're like, nope, can't cross this line in front of Dukes of Hazard, you know. But Blake, that's where I think the media coverage from the Pappy is certainly something that could have been the fire behind this sheriff to continue and having that media coverage and people keep coming, knocking on your door, asking you questions. I mean, that's going to keep, I mean, two years, come on. I mean, I know the whole thing was a bit over the top and obviously the way they portrayed everything was a bit ridiculous, but two years over a few bottles of Pappy, come on. Yep, I agree. It's definitely a good way to look at it. So we'll kind of wrap this up, just letting people know if, uh, if you didn't, if you want to know how kind of the story ends and where he is today. So Toby's parole supervision is set to end in 2023. And since the incident, Toby lost his job at Buffalo Trace. And according to his lawyer, he is now taking up painting houses as a way to support his wife and two kids. So there you go. So let's go ahead and start moving on to our next topic of the night. And that is the executive order on promoting competition in the American economy. And this is coming directly from the White House. And this is also looking directly at beverage alcohol industry. Now, this is not just beverage alcohol. It's a bunch of different stuff. But beverage alcohol industry is definitely one of them. And I think one of the, the biggest things that we'll point out is Section I of this that says, any unlawful trade practices in the beer, wine, and spirits markets, such as certain exclusionary, discriminatory, or anti-competitive distribution practices that hinder small and independent businesses or new entrants from distributing their products. Now, this is going to be very, very interesting, I think, because when we look at this and we look at the distribution model that's out there today, there's two U.S. distributors that account for more than half of what consumers actually get today. And this is wine, spirits, everything. And that's Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits and Republic National Distributing. They are a to combined, they are $27 billion is what their revenue is. So this is going to be an interesting shakeup because one of the things that we've all kind of come to see over the past few years is, oh, I can't get this without buying 62 cases of this, or I can't get into this state because whomever. I think this is going to be a, a really interesting kind of way, and I'll, I'll be really paying close attention to see what sort of investigation goes into this as well. And this is all coming again from the chair of the White House of the Competition Council. So to kind of pose a question to you all is, what are some of the things that we've all seen that, I mean, I mentioned a few of them, but is there anything else that I'm missing when it comes to these distribution practices that could potentially come backfiring on some of these larger companies? I mean, the first one that comes to mind for me is what a lot of the craft distilleries and distillers in general have to deal with where, you know, wine's gotten better, but go to a craft distiller in Florida. It's now, it used to be two bottles per year per person. It's not six bottles per year per person, but why can I go to my local liquor store and buy 
a thousand bottles if I wanted to, but if I go to the actual distillery, I can only buy six, you know, th they mention it specifically in the, in the, um, statement where they say, you know, unless it's promoting health or something to that extent or environmental reasons, I think is the other thing. Um, you know, if it's not promoting health or environmental, environmental reasons, we're not going to allow it to stay in place or you know, crack down on it. And so that's a perfect example. You know, if it's unhealthy for somebody to buy more than six bottles, well, we should have that at the liquor store as well. Um, and really all they're doing is they're stopping craft distilleries from having the sales because the distributor wants it and the retailer wants their cut on all of that. So, I, I mean, I think that would be huge for a lot of distillers across the country to have that open up and to be able to sell whatever they want out of their gift shops. But is that a state law there, Blake? So and typically it's state. And so that, and I will pose this to Brian as well, is, you know, obviously this is a federal mandate coming from the president, but how does that um, really shake out with it, different state laws? I know we've had some some court cases on this. So, Yeah, you've got, uh, it's definitely an interplay between the two. And, and a, frankly, a lot of what this executive order does is it interferes with state states' rights? I mean, when it's when it's trying to dictate an overall policy, sure, there's there's federal law that regulates distillation and and all those sorts of things. But the states have the power to decide how to run alcohol within their borders. Uh, I think what this will do is maybe help set some guidance. I think it'll help Kentucky with its direct to consumer shipping laws that we only have, I think, six or seven states that will actually accept that, that we've done the reciprocity with. But I think it'll help that. I think it might help in, in some other ways, um, but it's really a, a state issue. And I'm not sure how, how they dictate what the states all do under their own regimes. Well, I think what can come into play there is when you're dealing with distributors and they're working, of course, across state lines, the feds can come in and exercise some, you know, some rules that they'll have to abide by. Of course, they'll still have to abide by all the state rules, too. And I, I think what's on everybody's mind is, of course, shipping um, and that gets into interstate. And, you know, outside of this, of course, is the idea of U U.S. Postal Service being able to um, ship alcohol. You know, they've been talking about that for many years. Uh, you know, we know that in a lot of cases, the restriction comes from UPS or, or FedEx and it's, and it's just a, it, it, it's just a rule, you know, when they're more or less just trying to make sure they don't get themselves in hot water. Um, you know, you see it sometimes where they'll, you know, in certain areas geographically not allow, uh, that to happen or whatever the case might be. But if somehow the feds came in and said, Hey, us postal service, you're now allowed to ship alcohol. You know, I really think that could open up a lot of that. And of course, they still, you know, if you're selling, you still do technically have to abide by the state rules. But then it gets into, can the states really track all this and enforce it? It's kind of like the opposite of marijuana, where if the states are all saying, hey, we're going to allow for this, the feds just gave up. They said, there's just nothing more we can really do here. We're going to hold on to the last little vestiges of banking and rules that we can. But other than that, we're not enforcing it anymore. So it's got to get to that. The feds have to open up enough that the states have to then step back and say, all right, we just cannot control this anymore. Let's just open up our own distilleries, our own basically production so that we can encourage sales in our state and across state lines too.
Yeah, one thing that comes to my mind is like fairness of, you know, Kenny and I, we, with our own brand, we've reached out to, you know, bigger distributors in different states and they're just not, you know, interested in carrying your product or promoting. And if you do, how much are they going to help you and promote you versus, you know, a bigger brand where they have all this incentive and all these programs and all this to push product. And so it's just, you know, for a, and then I'm not sure what the answer is to make it fair, but, uh, and it may be like where, you know, if you're under a certain, in I don't know, if you're under a certain amount of case per year or something that you don't need, you know, a distribution per se, except just to collect taxes and pay that. Cause I know that's an important part that they do, you know, track and collect taxes for, you know, the states and government. Um, but as far as, you know, a brand like us, we don't need distribution because we don't need, we have a customer base that's small, but we don't need to have them to push product for us. And they're just a pass through. They're earning money doing hard, hardly anything. And that's not fair to craft distillers and small because they're running on thin margins and doing everything they can to make it. And, and, and I don't know the answer and, and I don't want to burn down the entire system because there are things about it that work. Uh, but I do think it needs to be updated and evolved. And I think shipping is a big part of that, you know, allowing it shipped across state lines somehow, would would be a big part of that and making it more fair but uh yeah it's interesting i hope you know some smart people are involved and you know do what's right for everyone i'm sure it won't it'll be whoever has the most money uh to uh <laughs> to to get their way to play but uh there's a lot I, of lobbying money involved 27 27 billion dollars they need to they need to save their face there but yeah. Ryan's point, Ryan, I loved your point about the uh, just being a pass through, just a necessary evil. They get money because the three tier system exists. And that's what I hope comes out of this. I mean, there's a lot of this executive order that I don't like, but man, if it can help, if this is another way to get rid of the three tier system, I mean, I'm all for it. Yeah. And I don't know if you had to get rid of it completely because, I mean, there are, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot because at first I did want to burn down the three tier system, but it's like, how can we update it to make it, you know, because they do do a lot as far as tax collection and making sure that that's and, you know, underage drinking is, uh, you know, not allowed. And and so there's a lot of things that need to be figured out in that regard. But uh, it's definitely not a fair playing field uh, from from that from the way it is currently set up right now the big boys have definitely a much easier time pushing the little guys to the side and making sure they don't get the exposure or the shelf space or the attention that they deserve yeah i mean you make a really really solid point there is that you know large distilleries they 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 need distributors i mean they do i mean wild turkey buffalo trace heaven hill you name it they need distributors. They're not going to have time to sit there and figure out how do we get this in the hands of direct direct to consumer or direct to retail shelves. It's I mean, they'd have to become their own distributor. And that's they're happy to pay whatever margin is to kind of take that off their plate. Um, and, and so, yes, there there is going to be a place there. But I do feel it's going to be with people that need larger distribution to get to uh, the most places possible. Granted, if you're only pumping out, you know, a couple thousand cases a year, then it's probably not going to be, you know, beneficial to you to sit there and lose 25% on margin just to have somebody that's a passer. That's really not going to be pushing your product. I mean, most of the time it's going to be word of mouth. They might be able to say like, okay, Hey, we got these new things in, you don't want them. Okay. On to the next one. And to that point too, Kenny, I mean, 
do the distributors really want those small? They, I mean, yeah. I don't, I don't think they really want to deal with it either. Um, I mean, so if anything, they're maybe dealing with that as some obligation or maybe the new guy just has some extra time on his hands, but you know, I could certainly see, as you mentioned, Ryan, like some kind of carve out for a certain volume to say you can bypass the distributor if your volume is under X. Yeah. Or just let you buy straight from the, the distillery or buy from, from an online you know, store, if you're, you know, I don't want to be distributed, say in Idaho, cause I only have 50 fans out there, but they should be able to go to my website and buy it and ship it there. You know, that I think that's reasonable. Um, you know, I, and I don't want to have to, and nor does a distributor in Idaho want to mess with 50 customers and, you know, 10 cases. So it's like, how can we make it a win-win for these small companies to, to, to be able to reach their fans and not go through all this, red tape and systems that, you know, are just really benefiting a few. Um, it's one of those instances where I'm like, it's really geared towards the top and I don't like it. Not just for us, but for we go to like, see Brian McKenzie, it's a small family distillery. They're, they're busting their ass, just trying to make it, trying to get their product out. You know, they, they don't have all this money and things to just have distributors go push their product for them. You know, they're just really grinding and they need, they need easy for customers to buy their product to make it so they can put food on their table and support their communities. And it's, let's do something for these small companies, you know, come on, let's get, let's do it. Good cheerleading right there. I guess uh, one thing I'll kind of wrap it up with when we, cause this is, I think the biggest thing that we, we hear, and this is also defending some of the retail stores. You know, we talk about unlawful distribution practices. You need to buy 42 cases of Wheatley vodka so you can get one Happy Van Winkle bottle. Like, I am curious, like how deep this investigation is going to go that is going to unroot and be able to expose that. And is that considered an unlawful distribution practice? I mean, legally, absolutely it is. But whether or not they'll dive deep enough to say, hey, yeah. But I, I, I get it from the distillery side as well. And the distributors like, hey, you want to reward your best customers because I'm sure everybody wants pappy so it's like well how do we allocate this well let's give it to our the, the people who are supporting the brand the most but um to have it kind of forced down your throat a bit and be like okay if you want this you have to sell fireball and wheatley like okay go out there and sell it now that's wrong too so it, it's a it's a double-edged sword with this problem but um just on the books alone, you can't say, all right, go sell X and we'll give you Y. And that that's an issue. Well, let's be real. I don't think anybody has to try to sell Fireball anymore. Like that's just like, that's just part of the thing that's on the shelf now. It's, uh, it's, it's everything else in the product portfolio they're trying to push. But even with some other stuff of like, hey, you know, you can't sell under margin or you can't sell under cost, you know there's plenty of stores that are advertising under cost and then you get in the store and it's slightly higher and nobody's going after that either. So very true. Very true. So let's go ahead and we will kind of close this one down. So this was an interesting topic tonight. I mean, I, I love being able to take a, you know, a good in-depth analysis of, of Pappy heist and, and kind of what we thought of the Netflix documentary. I'm sure if you've listened to it by now, you've either decided for yourself, you agree with us, you don't agree with us or you're just not going to watch it because you've heard pretty much every twist tale and the spoiler. But with that, I want to say thank you all for, for joining in, but I'm going to let people give another round to say 
who they are and where you can learn more about them and all the good things they're doing in bourbon. So Brian from Sipping Corn, we'll start with you. Yeah, the great show, guys. Appreciate it. And last uh, um, anti-plug for the documentary is it's it's clickbait. Um, don't don't bother with it. It's I I, it. it could have been done a lot lot better. But anyhow, Brian Sipping Corn. Uh, you can find me at Sipping Corn or BourbonJustice.com. Really enjoy these and looking forward to the next one. For sure, Nick. Hey, thanks everybody. Fun topics. Um, Nick with Breaking Bourbon, BreakingBourbon.com. Find us on all the socials uh, at Breaking Bourbon. Thanks, guys. You got it. And Blake, round it out. Yeah, I'm Blake from Bourboner.com and Sealbox.com. Um, I'm going to take the counterpoint to Brian. I'm going to say if you haven't watched it, definitely stay up till 2 a.m. tonight and make sure you knock out all episodes. It's worth the watch. <laughs> uh, no, honestly, a fun show. I think that was a fun one to kind of unravel. I think we all had different opinions on it, which always makes it interesting. So always fun to be on here. Ryan, Kenny, thanks for having me. For sure. And I, I'd like to, you know, I think, Granted, it just feeds the feeds the machine even more. I feel like all of the bourbon documentaries always point back at Sazerac. It seems that, you know, whether it's the story of Neat, it had mostly Freddie Johnson, a lot of panoramic stuff of Buffalo Trace. This one was definitely geared towards Buffalo Trace. I'll be kind of curious when the the next one kind of comes out if there's anything that highlights a different bourbon distillery. So we'll see what happens. Just need another rogue employee to step up and make it happen well i mean ryan we got our own brand but i keep close eye on the book so we'll see what you can sneak away with yeah i don't know what you've been taking i need to do an i need a clipboard with some roman numerals so i can uh, (laughs) see what you've been taking well you know and then after this uh, we're gonna go ahead um sign ups for the softball league are gonna be at 12 p.m tonight they open up so make sure you go in get your number and uh you got to come up with your own nickname so we know Ryan's just called Bardstown. I think Blake is, you know, we always know him as uh, Cal Ripken. Uh, who's going to be the face? Who's going to be the face? Who's going to supply was... the steroids is the real question. <laughs> <laughs> because if we're going to play in that league, we're going to need it. It's definitely Brian. <laughs> <laughs> all right. But with that, cheers, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we will see you all next week. Next week.